Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the great love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for leading us on. Thank you that when we repent, we are restored. So as we come to your word this morning, shine your word in our heart, our mind, our soul, so that we love you, so that we follow Jesus evermore. And in his name we pray, amen. So last week we began the sermon series, The Ministry of Jesus. And as I mentioned, it's not a scintillating title. I I get that. But it is a very good and descriptive title. And as we dive into it more and more, we will see the depth and breadth and the profound love of God in this series. That is what we will be doing. And as I mentioned during announcements and as last week, ministry simply means to be of service to others. Therefore, when we talk about the ministry of Jesus, we are talking about his teaching, his preaching, his healing, his death, his resurrection for us, all to the glory of God. The problem when we think about ministry is we often think that ministry is just for the professionals, right? For the pastor, for the musicians, or somebody else. But uh, I really liked, I, I got an email this week, and I really liked what this person said. It said, it, uh, it says, I believe that my ministry is wherever, whenever, and whoever he puts in my path. And each day is truly ordered by him, and hopefully he equips me and uses me to glorify him. That makes sense, right? Whenever, wherever, whoever, all to the glory of God. That's what ministry is. Now that should sound pretty doable, shouldn't it? I mean, it, it should sound, I, I mean, especially when you first go into full-time ministry, it's like exciting. You know, and people, they join a church and they're like, oh, I'll start doing some things. I'll be involved in the ministry here. And it sounds pretty good in the abstract, doesn't it? But the reality of ministry is that you deal with other people. And it gets messy, doesn't it? In the abstract, ministry is wonderful. In the reality, it's a lot tougher and you get tested in many different ways. You know, in business, they say business would be easy if it weren't for the customers. Church would be great if it weren't for the people. You know, there's that correlation there. So the thing that you should be aware of as you follow Christ Jesus and as you learn from him and as you engage in being of service to others, there's going to be a time of testing Ministry unto God ends up testing your character. You find not only your strengths, you certainly find your weaknesses and failings and shortcomings as well. And that's why we keep going back to the cross. Because ministry again and again and again points you back to the cross. Because in church, what better place do you learn about love and grace and forgiveness and mercy 
and repentance and reconciliation. This is what we do together, and this is how we learn together. And if you're serious about, you know, serving others and following Jesus, and I don't mean grimly serious, you know, like, no, but I mean like, I really want to follow him, and I want to be of service to others. You actually learn from the character of Jesus and who he is, and his character, his nature, shapes yours. So today, we are going to learn from Jesus. We are going to learn from God's word about who Jesus is, his character, and thus we too will be shaped and be strengthened then for the work that is ahead of us. And today we are going to go into Matthew chapter 4. It's called the temptation of Jesus. And we're going to really focus on three, three, I know I have hold up four. Please stand apparently. Okay, three things. Actually, it's four, but three main things we're going to look at. Trusting God's word, trusting God's ways, and worshiping God above all else. Okay, that is our path. But first, we have to go into being tested by the tempter. So we're going to start with our text. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So, remember, last week, the context was Jesus had just been baptized. And it had been a glorious work of God. There's God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, all working together in this wonderful moment of baptism for Jesus. The Holy Spirit anoints him, seals him. God the Father confirms the consecration. This is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So it's this wonderful thing. Now you might think, wouldn't you think, that wouldn't that be like the perfect time for Jesus to start preaching and teaching right then and there? I mean, you would think so. And yet the Holy Spirit leads him immediately out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. See, it's not only God the Father and God the Holy Spirit anointing, consecrating Jesus. Now his character will be shown as well. So the devil. Now, the devil is known here also by a number of other names. Satan tempter, adversary, the wicked one, the evil one. And where do we find the devil? Where's the devil first shown? Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. The devil is first shown there as the serpent. And the serpent is described as craftier than any other beast of the field. The devil is cunning and is opposed to all that God has done and will do. And he will tempt and test you. The reality of the devil is that he is there. It's not just a figment, not just a myth. Jesus knew that the devil existed. All the apostles knew the devil existed. But nowadays, we have kind of downplayed that, haven't we? Yeah, the devil. 
Do you remember Flip Wilson? Yeah, Flip Wilson. And his famous line was, the devil made me do it. Right? And it was a way to kind of, and he was funny, by the way. He's got this character, Geraldine, about being, you know, lured by the devil to buy a dress. I didn't want to do it, but the devil made me do it. Right? And so we make fun out of all of that. But the reality is much worse than that. Because the devil is opposed to all that God has done, will do. He is opposed to God. And he will tempt or test you. As a matter of fact, the better, I think the better word here in Scripture, I know it says tempt, but it has a greater sense of being tested, of the character being shown. So this idea of being tested also is correlated because Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And that number 40 has significance throughout Scripture. So, for example, Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, two separate occasions. Prophet Jonah powerfully warned Nineveh for 40 days about its destruction because of sin. The prophet Ezekiel laid on his right side for 40 days to symbolize Judah's sins. And how long were the Israelites in the desert? 40 years, right? So that period of 40 has a time of testing, of probation, as it were. This is also shown. Actually, do you know why? Do you know why the Israelites were in the desert for 40 years? They disobeyed. They They did not have that full, complete faith in God. And so God put them in the desert for 40 years. Israel failed in their faith. Israel's failing showed their lack of complete faith. But now here in the text, Jesus will reveal his complete faithfulness to God. And it's interesting when you take a look at this text and the three temptations that are given all correspond to Israel. So Israel, they demanded bread, they doubted the Lord's presence, and they despaired of his help. Jesus reverses all of their faithlessness because he is faithful. And finally, let us remember that it is God who is not tempting Jesus. God does not tempt anyone to sin. As it says in James chapter 1, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And so the devil will tempt to try to entice you with your desires. Okay, so that's all context, right? Jesus is there being tempted by the tempter. Now, let's go to the first one. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So here, the devil uses his primary scheme or primary weapon, and that is doubt. Doubt. What did the devil say to Eve 
and thus to Adam as well, in the garden. Did God actually say? Right? Did God really say that? Now here with Jesus, he uses this word, if. If you are the Son of God. Now I got to admit, I don't think the devil's very bright right there. I mean, Jesus had just come from his baptism, right? This is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well. Please listen to him. So there is no doubt on Jesus' part of who he is, but the devil will use doubt whenever and wherever he can. I like how one person paraphrased it, paraphrasing the devil's uh, tactic here. If that is what the Father told you at your baptism and what you believe, make use of your majestic dignity and no longer be tortured by hunger. The Son of God hungry? Oh, how ridiculous! If, then, you are the Son of God, tell these stones to turn into bread. And Of course, Jesus has no doubt whatsoever, but we must not discount the power of the devil, and doubt. He will use it whenever and wherever he can. It was doubt that caused Adam and Eve to sin. It also caused the Israelites to be faithless. Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 2, And the whole congregation of the people of Israel mumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. We, even though we were slaves, we at least had food as slaves. Now you brought us out here, we're free, but we have no food. You see, in the face of physical needs, it's easy to turn away from God, to lose trust in Him and His provisions. That song, His Eye is on the Sparrow, right? Perfect song for this. Go back, go through those verses again. His eye is on the sparrow. But when doubt comes in, we start to think, God, if you really love me, you will give me what I need, and this is what I need. And so we demand things of God because we doubt, especially even when it comes to the basics. But what did Jesus say? Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. By the way, Jesus in all of these is quoting the Old Testament. So if you have any doubt the Old Testament is God's word, just read Matthew chapter 4. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So by the word of the Lord, what came down from heaven? Manna, bread from heaven. By the way, Jesus is also known as what? 
the bread of life. And he is also known as the word of God. So the, by the word of God, we have Christ Jesus, who is our bread. But I got to tell you, when, you're, when you don't have a lot of food, when you don't have a lot of provisions, when your car is broken and you're not sure how to pay rent, it's really easy to start to lose faith. But every week, and we're going to pray it again, every week we do the Lord's Prayer, don't we? And what do we say in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. What does that mean? It says we depend and trust that he will provide all that we need in body and soul. Now, I know we pray that, but do we believe it? Right? That's the question. I know we pray it. Do we believe it? Let me tell you about a man who really believed it. His name's George Mueller. Has anybody heard of George Mueller? He lived in England in the 1800s. He had a 60-year ministry working with orphans. Over his 60 years, it's estimated that he dealt with 10,000 orphans. Now, in running all of these orphanages, he... Um, At that time, he said, I am never going to do fundraising. I am never going to ask the the people to pay up to support this orphanage. He brought everything to the Lord in prayer, everything. We're going to sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And so, why? Because he actually believed that God answers prayers. He believed, give us this day our daily bread. So let me give you one story about him. It starts this way. The children are dressed and ready for school, but there is no food for them to eat. The house mother of the orphanage informed George Mueller. George asked her to take the 300 children into the dining room and have them sit at the tables. He thanked God for the food and waited. George knew that God would provide food for the children as he always did. Within minutes, a baker knocked on the door. Mr. Mueller, he said, last night I could not sleep. Somehow I knew you would need bread this morning. I got up and baked three batches for you. I'll bring it in. Soon, there was another knock at the door. It was the milkman. His cart had broken down in front of the orphanage. The milk would spoil by the time the wheel was fixed. He asked George if he could spare some free milk. George smiled as the milkman brought in 10 large cans of milk, just enough to feed 300 thirsty children. This is the power of prayer. This is the faithfulness in God who does provide. This is what it means. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we trust in his word. We also trust in God's ways. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now the exact spot of the pinnacle isn't necessarily given here, 
One conjecture is this, that it might have been on the roof edge of Herod's royal porch, which looked down some 450 feet. A big, big drop. But the exact point or the exact height is not the point here. Basically, here's what the devil is doing. He's saying, if you really are the Son of God, if God really loves you, nothing bad will ever happen to you. So go ahead, in public, put God to the test. And then to prod him on, the devil even uses Scripture. He says, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. But you know, in the garden, the devil twists Scripture, right? Modifies it just slightly to his own uses. Here, he actually makes Psalm 91 into the exact opposite of what it's supposed to mean. Psalm 91 is about trusting in God. Verse 2 of Psalm 91, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. But what does Satan do? Satan casts doubt on God's faithfulness and tempts us to not trust God, but to tempt him. So he'll take Scripture. Oh, the devil knows Scripture. He'll take Scripture and twist it in a certain light to have you believe something else. He also might leave off certain words or modify certain things. For example, in the garden, the devil said, did God actually say you may not eat of any fruit of the, tree in the, of the trees in the garden? Right? He said that. Is that what God actually said? God said, you may not eat of one tree, the fruit of one tree, knowledge of good and evil. All the others you can eat. But the devil just twists it a little bit. So here, by the way, Psalm 91, there's not a full quotation by the devil. The full quotation would be, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That little phrase, in all your ways, is left off. Well, why is that important? Well, you just can't do things that are against God's will and expect him to keep you safe from harm all the time. If you are sinning, which is, a, sin is against God's will, when you are sinning against God, he's not simply going to keep you from harm. There are consequences for your sin. God can't condone such sin. And to say that God will keep me from all harm and I can do whatever I want because it's all grace, right? Makes trivial God's love, His grace, His mercy, His holiness. Now, we do that in some maybe a little lighthearted ways with a nod to comedian Tim Hawkins. He says, people pray like this at the Sunday meal. Heavenly Father, gracious God, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for providing all of this food. Thank you for caring for us. Gracious God, I know how much you love me. And I know you know that I need to lose weight. 
So I ask you in your great provision to make this chicken and gravy and biscuits calorie-free as I eat them. Right? Or you might say, gracious God, I know how much you care for me. I know you know how much I am behind in rent, so please let this hand be a royal flush. You want God to bless you? Walk in His ways, not your ways. So we have to heed what Jesus said. He said, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 16. It's part of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So this actually reflects back to a time in Exodus when the people were lacking water. And they accused Moses of being cruel. And in, they, they end up disrespecting God. They say, is the Lord among us or not? So, whereas they were faithless, Jesus is faithful, trusting God in all of his ways and never putting God to the test. This is why, you know, when we dedicated the altar last week, this is why we dedicate it unto the Lord for His use, His glory. Not that we're going to do everything and then hopefully God will get the glory. It's Him first and His ways first and foremost. As I quoted last week from Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So we trust God in all of His ways. And we worship God above all else. So let's take a look at this. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, as I was thinking through this, I thought about James Warner Wallace. James Warner Wallace was a cold case detective, homicide detective, top of his field in the nation. And he says there are three motivations for murder. Three motivations for murder. Financial greed, sexual relation, relational lust, and the pursuit of power. So, greed, lust, or power. All of these are motivations for murder. By the way, the devil is a murderer. He will tempt you and test you with these things to sin. And the wages of sin is death. The devil is a murderer. And as Jesus said in Gospel of John, he is a murderer from the beginning. So, the devil uses power. Now, power is very enticing. There are a lot of people throughout history who want power. You think of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, his kingdom was, he conquered 2,180,000 square miles. That's a big area. Genghis Khan, almost 5 million square miles. And you can't think of Napoleon and, and other, other conquerors, right? They wanted power. 
But it's just not the people who go on conquest and war. I worked in corporate America for 15 years. Anybody else work in corporate America? Boy, in corporate America, you see fiefdoms. You know, people who are like, that's my base. That's my power. Don't you dare question my authority. You find that throughout. And they even run over people because they are so engaged with keeping, maintaining, and growing their power. But it's not just in business either. Happens in churches too, doesn't it? Now, I'm not talking just even locally here, but look, on a national level, without going to all sorts of names, you see certain leaders who are held up. They get the standing ovations. They get all the adulations. People say, oh, I follow this person. I follow this person. I follow this person. And they get all of the glory. And you know that they have succumbed to the scheme of the devil, which is power and glory. And that's what the devil offers. You know, for me, okay, it's nice when you tell me you like my sermons. It is. I'm not, I'm human. I like it. But what gives me the great, great joy, I'm very serious about this, what gives me the best and greatest joy is when you say you have grown in your love of Jesus. That you know him as Lord and Savior and you, you want to follow him evermore. And you're compelled and filled by his good news, the gospel. You see, I, I'm not here for me. I'm here for you for the glory of God. And quite frankly, as I've told you again and again, I'm a pointer dog. I just point to the one to whom you should follow. With Jesus, he can't make any headway, right? He can't make any headway at all. But he tries. And you know what he tries to do? The devil tempted Jesus to gain a crown of glory without the cross. And he will tempt each one of us to also gain glory without the cross as well. But what did Jesus say? He said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. It is a command. Be gone, Satan. It's not a suggestion. It's not just an irritation. It is a be gone. Similar to what he said to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. It is in this command that he shows his abhorrence, his disgust at what the devil is proposing. It also shows that in his command, he is supreme over the devil. That there is nothing the devil can do to touch him. And here again, he goes back to Deuteronomy, the Shema, you shall, which says, ultimately is about God's love. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all your might. This is God filling your life so much, drawing close so much to Him and His holiness that you abhor anything 
that is wicked or is evil, the more you draw closer to Christ, the more you abhor the things that are of the devil, the things that are of the world. This is what we learn from the character of Jesus. Now look, <laughs> I, I'm, I know I'm going a little longer this morning. Woohoo, here we go. When I first started this sermon, I thought, I don't have anything to say. <laughs> I proved that wrong, huh? And the more I got into it, you know what I noticed? There was a whole lot more. I mean, there's at least another sermon or two in this. We're not going to do it today. Woo! I got, I got to say that prayer about lunch, you know? Um, sorry, a little joke there. But there's a lot in here. And I want us to at least start to learn the principles of what Jesus is teaching us. You know, each one of us, we have our own weakness, our own failings, which is why we look to Jesus. We look to the cross every single day. We do. We draw close to him, to his throne, and learn from his mercy, his grace, his love. We receive his mercy, his grace, his love, because we know we have a high priest who's gone before us and has been tempted in every way that we could be tempted. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a Lord and Savior we have in Jesus. So we go to him. And the closer we draw to him, his word, his truth, his righteousness, our character is made more into him. And we learn to trust God's word completely. To trust God's ways completely. And to worship God above all else. That's the simple lesson. That's the profound lesson today from Matthew. And everyone says, Amen. Amen.